0: Welcome to a Kessler Foundation podcast. The Foundation is a global leader in rehabilitation research that seeks to improve cognition, mobility, and long-term outcomes, including employment for people with neurological disabilities caused by diseases and injuries of the brain and spinal cord. In this episode, we are talking with Dr. John O'Neill. He is the Director of Employment and Disability Research at Kessler Foundation and has over 28 years of experience in vocational rehabilitation as a rehabilitation counselor, educator, disability employment researcher, and advisor to state vocational rehabilitation agencies. He spoke with Rob Gerth, the foundation's communications director. So I think I'm gonna start with
1: Jean Vanier. I think I'm saying that right. (laughs) I wanna start with it because you just taught me how to pronounce it correctly. And so I want to do it while I remember it. So that's why I'm doing it. Now, he's a guy. One of the things I love about working here, John, in all seriousness, is running into you in the hallway or you're on your way out or on your way in and you say hi. And the next thing I know, I'm in a conversation that I didn't expect to be in (laughs) about who knows what, which I really enjoy. Uh, So uh, Vanier is a guy who died at the age of 90 this spring. That's why it came up. And he is uh, you got me interested in him. So tell me who he is and how he relates to your life.
2: Well, he's um I never met him. Uh I've always admired him from a distance and his work. He uh is a French Canadian, but he also spent a lot of time in 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 France. And uh he has very strong uh religious beliefs which are um, very Catholic in in origin. And he um got engaged in um, um, with disability by um, sharing his life with individuals with disability. Um, and he brought them into his home and started something called the large movement, which is actually international at this point. And uh, it's basically, it's based upon his notions of um, life-sharing, for lack of a better term. But there are many large communities around, uh, particularly in Canada, but in the United States, too, where uh, people uh, in the community... um, decide to share their lives with individuals, uh, typically with uh, pretty severe disabilities, often developmental disabilities, and instead of, instead of individuals being paid to care for people with disabilities, it's individuals without disabilities uh, sharing their lives with people who have disabilities. And, um, um, so it's, um, it, it, um, because it's voluntary and no one's getting paid and there's no, um, there's no, uh, government involvement, um, and, um, it brings a lot of value to the lives of people with disabilities, um, because they're truly integrated into the community and they're, they're living with and sharing their lives with, with folks who really care about them.
1: Which gives you, a, what a great idea. But It must give those people that are doing that quite a different perspective. And that's kind of what we try to do here too is try to give a perspective. hmm so he he even said like how much it changed it it which it changes people it changes for him when he first started doing it how it changed his just whole outlook on life and how he was like oh I'm looking at life all backwards how I'm doing it mm-hmm. yeah and ha- so how is how is his teachings come into your daily work habits or your your life stream how has it directed you or focused you
2: well I'm not sure. Focused me, it just sort of emphasized uh, some notions that I had about disability and the place of disability in uh, in the world. Um, I, I was also very influenced by some of the literature that is out there, um, um, and it's not academic literature necessarily. It's more historical and uh, and um, uh, and, and how vulnerable uh, disability communities are. Um, and it, it is a known fact that during the Weimar Republic, uh, prior to the rise of Nazism, uh, <clears throat> people in institutions who had disabilities were uh, really the, the, the final solution was piloted on those individuals. Hmm. And... Um, you know, there was a, historically, it's a historical fact that there was a, uh, you know, a committee in Germany of um, health workers um, and physicians who were sent, you know, documents from institutions. And they were given the task of deciding whether uh, individuals would uh, be uh, killed or not. Hmm. And... um and so, that historical uh, fact uh, kind of influenced my life in terms of wanting to uh, wanting to um, you know be part of a community that was um, um, advancing the well-being of, of of individuals with disabilities.
1: Was it always uh, to be a researcher, or did you start somewhere else?
2: Um, well, the um, my work as a as an undergraduate, I was focused on experimental psychology, and um, and I had uh, assumed that after, you know, after my undergraduate degree, I would go and uh, move on to graduate work in experimental psychology. Um, but I had to do alternative service uh, because I was a conscientious object objector during the Vietnam War, um, okay. and uh, so I, I was placed in, uh, well, I had to find a place to work uh, that was in the public service uh, where I would be earning what a private would be okay. earning in the military, um, and uh, so I found a, a psychiatric hospital in western New York State, uh, go on to State Hospital, uh, where I worked as a, an, uh, a therapy aide on, the, uh, on the wards there. Hmm. And that got me engaged in, um, I guess you would say advocacy, but just recognizing the kinds of um, very biased, negative kind of treatment that folks, in this case with psychiatric disabilities, experienced in a congregate care setting and, and, and at uh,
1: that time I guess the settings were even were, were not good like that, that was like before sort of the mini revolution that cleaned up some of those places Is that
2: well I'm not sure yes uh, it, it was um, really wasn't before but um, you know there was the community mental health programs that um uh, uh, John Kennedy want, wanted to put in place. They they never really um, took hold in a very comprehensive way. But um, the deinstitutional movement was occurring at that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this was you know this was a congregate care facility and. And there wasn't a lot of movement or out of the facility back into the community, um, and so I I also saw some some heroin uh, hmm. treatment of individuals uh, that lived in this uh, hospital, and it kind of energized me to want to do something about it.
1: So what? It, so you went to Syracuse for your undergrad and for your graduate right, work, right? What um, so? What trajectory did that put you on? Then did that change where you were?
2: Well, I about? being at Gwanda State Hospital, uh, as far as I could see, the only people there that were doing anything constructive was the uh, rehabilitation unit. Hmm. They had, oh, uh, psychologists. Um, rehabilitation counselors, occupational therapists, teachers who were uh, working with the population at the hospital. It was a small group of individuals, but uh, I admired what they were doing. And their, their, uh, their director happened to be a person who was, uh, by training, a rehabilitation counselor. He had a PhD, he was a graduate of Buffalo university. And uh, so I admired what they were doing. And so I decided that I would take that track uh, more applied than research. Mm -hmm. Um, And I applied to several schools and uh, I was accepted at Columbia and Syracuse. So I went back to Syracuse.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Something about the cold must have attracted you. Um, Did you have any... uh, family that were that were in the same direction like did that influence you at all what your family was doing or no were they like caregivers or they were totally not it was just you you picked this path all on your own all on my own isn't that funny um well it's not that funny my dad was a mailman and i'm not a mailman so i guess that makes (laughs) a lot of sense um but he was a good mailman and so i'm trying to be good at what i do so i did learn a lot of lessons um, how about mentors? Did you have any mentors then at, at Syracuse that
2: influenced you? I did. I had a, a one mentor in particular. Well, actually, two, um, but one in particular who was uh, who was a, a, a researcher uh, in uh, in the field, and uh, so uh, so I did get interested, very interested in applied research, um, uh, which was his area of specialty. Um, and he was entrepreneurial in terms of, uh, seeking and, um, uh, and being awarded grants to fund his research. And so he was one mentor I had for sure. Uh, there was other, another mentor I had at Syracuse who was, uh, a fellow by the name of Burton Blatt. Um, he was the um, um, eventually the dean of the school of education, and and uh, he was very much an advocate for people with disabilities. And he wrote, he did a photo essay of the um, uh, the um, uh, the uh, uh, the treatment of. Particularly, folks with developmental disabilities, intellectual disabilities, the uh, abuse that was occurring in uh, large congregate care settings all over the Northeast, hmm. and um, he did a fo- photo essay of that. Uh, it was a <clears throat> book called *Christmas in Purgatory*, hmm. and um, he actually um, he tried to get um, uh, funding to. Published the book from the Kennedys, and uh, Bobby was running for senator in, in New York State, and um, they both, Bobby and Jack, said, uh, "Well, we'll we'll pay for the publish publish publishing your book as, as long as you reveal to us um, where these institutions are, um, so we can." Probably uh, make them into uh, some sort of political hay, ah. and Bert Bert Blatt said no, and uh, <laughs> so they didn't publish his book. But he ultimately got it published. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. And he he had promised uh, the the directors of these institutions that allowed him a- a- access that he would keep the uh, the information anonymous. Hmm. So.
1: So a lot of your, uh, so it's sort of happenstance that you were a conscientious objector, so the Vietnam War, and that kind of pushed you in a direction that unexpected direction. Did you do one-on-one counseling at some point in your career? Then did you did you do that, or did you go right from right into research and?
2: Well, I did. It was um, the graduate degree, uh, the doctorate at Syracuse University, and in rehabilitation counselor education required uh, clinical work as well as research. So mm-hmm. it's, it was modeled after the uh, clinician researcher model, mm-hmm. and um, so I, I worked in the VA as a counselor for some of my field work and, uh, and did other counseling practica during my graduate work.
1: And then, how'd you end up at Kessler Foundation?
2: You've been here how many years? Seven years. Seven years. Well, after my after I graduated from uh, Syracuse with my PhD, I <clears throat> I was uh, looking for work, and um, I saw a job that was available at the Rusk Institute for Rehabilitation in New York at New York University Hospital, um, and um, so I applied for that job, and um, it was um, a job where I was um, involved in uh, field testing uh, something called the rehabilitation indicators, which were indicators of rehabilitation outcomes uh, in terms of skills, activities, etc. And this particular job was uh, with the United Cerebral Palsy of New York State. And they were very involved in the deinstitutionalization of Willowbrook State School, which was a large congregate care facility on Staten Island. And so lots of people were being moved out of that um, snake pit (laughs) Um, and into the communities where they came from. So I was field testing the rehabilitation indicators on that population Mm -hmm. as they moved from the congregate care facility into apartments uh, that were more integrated into the community. And so, um, yeah, and that's how I got connected with medical rehabilitation was um, because the Wayne Gordon and Margaret Brown, who were at the time they were at uh, at Rusk, and um, so, uh, but they had this grant from uh, uh, the federal government to develop these instruments, and they were field testing them around the country, and and so um, one of the jobs they had available was at UCP of New York State to field test these instruments. So, I was. Back in a setting where good things were going on, people hmm. were being taken out of these congregate care facilities where they were at risk for abuse, um, and being moved back to their home communities, uh, which um, I valued that, and so, and I was conducting research on that. As a matter of fact, I think it was the only quantitative research that was done on the deinstitutionalization of that. Um, oh that uh that facility
1: wow and and that then th- how did that take you into kessler foundation then?
2: well <clears throat> i was a- i was working for ucp i and always wanted an academic job and um, like, so, like university professor yeah, teaching yeah, yeah and okay. i was adjuncting at new york university f- during the time i was at ucp um uh, but a, a a a position came available and 1984 (laughs) at uh hunter college which is part of the city university of new york and i applied for that position and ended up there uh, as an academic for uh, 28 years or something you're still there right you're still doing some teaching still uh i'm a professor emeritus there so i still i teach one course a semester Oh, good
1: that's great What's what's normally the course? Is it the same course, or is it?
2: It's all always the almost always the same course. It's the um, uh, it's the basic foundations course in rehabilitation counseling hmm. and vocational rehabilitation.
1: What majors usually take that? Just out of curiosity? Uh,
2: these are graduate students, graduate students who are getting their degrees in rehabilitation counseling.
1: Cool. So you've been around the business. Like thirty years, is that is that about right?
2: Well, depends on how far back you go. I started my <laughs> conscientious objective work in nineteen seventy. So. Okay, yeah, well, there you go.
1: Um, so, so has you have a perspective? I just want to get your perspective. H- has it progressed? Because it's a really tough field. H- has it progressed at all in that time?
2: Has the field progressed? Well,
1: has the has the vocational rehabilitation? How it's being dealt with, how things are are done, is it is it this? It, it, you know, people aren't being institutionalized anymore for the most part, so that's good. But what what have you seen during your thirty years? We got plenty of time. Go ahead.
2: From my perspective, I'm not sure there's been uh, um, there have been advancements, uh, improvements, um, but I still think there's a strong need for continued vigilance in terms of um, the uh, treatment of individuals with disabilities uh, just because they have moved into the community and they're more integrated does not necessarily mean that they are um, immune to, uh, to abuse and um, I think some of the um, I'm thinking of New York city and New York State in particular, there's been <clears throat> quite a bit of uh, press on, um, on, on the abuse and uh, mistreatment of folks who are living in the community, uh, um, and uh, there's been quite a bit of concern about that, and uh, I, I know that one of Burton Blatt's uh, uh, nightmares, as he was advocating for the deinstitutionalization of people with disabilities was that you know once everyone was back in the community um, that eventually they might end up back in congregate care facilities <laughs> because their treatment was so bad in the community <laughs> right right so
1: so that's a danger still in your mind that
2: well, it, it could be I mean um, it's interesting to note that, um, in the 1900s, there was these these institutions, which eventually became warehouses for people with disabilities. Um, uh, they were originally established in order to protect people with differing disabilities uh, from the community, hmm. because people with disabilities. Uh, were being mistreated in their communities. And these advocates like Dorothea Dix and uh, Samuel Gridley Howe, amongst others, were creating institute, were creating congregate care facilities where the, there was going to be better treatment, where they were going to take an educational approach. Um, so it was these were safe havens initially. And um, but towards the turn of the century into the 20th century, um, because of various societal um, perspectives, um, uh, these institutions were um, were considered to be um, places where. Uh, folks with disabilities would simply be ignored or abused because they weren't, they were, uh, because of uh, the, um, uh, you know, the, the, the public's concern about being exposed to people with disabilities, about the eugenics scare, etc. Mm-hmm. cetera. Mm-hmm. Uh, now these institutions that were supposed to be havens uh, or asylums, places of safety, uh, became warehouses, uh, where 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 folks were basically being n- neglected. So that was one of Bert's nightmares that we would return to, taking people out of communities and putting them back in congregate care s- settings for their own protection. <laughs> right.
1: Is there is is there a bright side anywhere along in the history here that you've been involved? Is there is there progression that you see?
2: Yeah, I think there is. I think um, the particularly in the in the um, there's been a lot of work to improve community community based care and to shift funding uh, from these hospitals, congregate care. Settings back into communities. Um, there are very strong advocacy groups, uh, many of them, and um, and uh, I, I think that is uh, all for the good. I'm just thinking of uh, the ARCs and APSI and and other organizations. Uh, there are quite a few or organizations that are advocating for folks with psychiatric disabilities as well. Uh, very grassroots organizations initially, but they have grown and they have quite a bit of clout and uh, influence.
1: Getting people out of these?
2: Getting people out of congregate care settings, but also improving the community-based care that exists. Finding ways to uh, to keep people safe and... Um, and thriving in the community,
1: and there is some resistance to that, right? It's not all like everybody's agreeing that this is what we should do.
2: Yeah, that's true. Uh, there has been some resistance, um, but I, I think that has even waned quite a bit. Hmm. So.
1: So let's switch gears for a second. Then mm-hmm. let's 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 talk about some things that you that you're doing here at Kessler. And one of them is what I was introduced early on is this first Friday of every month we all wake up early and come to the office and we wait for us here and in the at the University of New Hampshire. There's a group that's doing the same thing as we work on this project together that we call Entide. Um and we wait for the uh, jobs report to come out, which comes out I think at 8:30, and then 8:30 a.m. And then we um, interpret those numbers from the jobs report and, and apply them to people with disabilities as far as the workforce goes. Tell me, tell me about that. What we what that is supposed to be doing for us?
2: Well, the um, keeping the employment situation amongst people with disabilities front. And foremost in the public eye, um, I think is is the intention of that. Um, you know, back in six years or so ago, uh, we decided to you know plant our flag in the sand, <laughs> <laughs> and um, it's not a particularly complicated process. Uh, to customize the data when it comes out. and, um, and But doing it every month and uh, connecting it to a webinar which we, uh, the University of New Hampshire and, and the Kessler Foundation co-sponsor, connecting it to an educational webinar the same day and doing it every month. 12 times a year. <laughs> <laughs> rain or shine. Uh, rain or shine. And then, uh, and then the, the good work that uh, the University of New Hampshire, as well as the Kessler Foundation, does in terms of getting it out to the public, <clears throat> I think is is uh, our intention was that it would make a difference.
1: And this is about um, letting people know how many people with disabilities so the the employment numbers are about how many people that are are looking for work how many people that are looking for work or finding jobs that's what the employment numbers in general are about and what we focus on is the number of people that are living with a disability that are looking for work or what how how they what percentage of them are actually finding work month to month right that's that's what we're talking about
2: well <clears throat> yeah, it's yes, we're, we're, we're looking at workforce participation, which includes looking and having a job. And so we, uh, we emphasize that having a job um, because that's the ultimate outcome. So and, and certainly we, we also look at those that are looking and working.
1: And then over the six years, do, does the employment of people with disabilities rise and fall with the job numbers, or does it go counter to the—like, if if unemployment rate is good for people that uh, are living without a disability, is it also good or bad for people living with a disability?
2: Well, the—we've um, been doing this since the uh, beginning of the Great Recession, mm-hmm. so— for people with and without disabilities, we were tracking downturns. Um, And uh, well, we weren't doing it from the beginning of the Great Recession, but we we, we were several years into the Great Recession. And um, and what we saw was uh, there were downturns for people with and without disabilities. um, And the upswing was started for people without disabilities sooner than it did for people with disabilities. It continued, the employment situation continued to deteriorate uh, for a couple years uh, past when people with disabilities were getting jobs mm. uh, or were returning to the same job job rate uh, at, uh, they had at the beginning of the Great Recession. Um we did begin to see some improvement and um, I think it was about two thousand sixteen for two years. Uh, there was an there was a steady uptick amongst people with with disabilities and uh, that's kind of plateaued at this point point. Um, and uh, we're obviously hoping that it will uh, that they, continue to be an uptick um but the discrepancy between people with and without disabilities has always been great um and it's uh and by great you you
1: don't mean good you mean big big yeah it's been
2: big yeah it's been you know it can be as the discrepancy has been as high as 40 percent wow so it's it's uh it's a big discrepancy and all, much of the work that the foundation does in terms of its grant giving is is focused on trying to trying to uh, um, lessen that that gap.
1: Yeah, affect that number. Like that would be the ultimate goal is to be able to right. take some credit in having some effect on that number. Right. right. Yeah. I know you don't really like to speculate, but I'm going to ask you if you would, because I know on the on the webinar we do. On the first Friday we don't really talk about oh it could be this could be that but do you have any feel you know after you know doing these the, this end tide uh, for six years do you have any feel for reasons for the ebb and flow is is it just the economy or and the, and that gap that we're talking about is 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 it just people's attitudes is it just you know are we fighting the same thing that we've always fought that people living with disabilities just it, it they're too much trouble, probably can't do the job anyway, so why should I bother? It's hard enough hiring people. Is it, Give me some insight into that. <laughs> Speculate for me, if you would.
2: I think certainly amongst employers, <clears throat> um, well, let, let me back up a little bit. Sure. Um, you know, amongst employers, they've been very um, forward. In uh, pushing the diversity agenda, um, but that diversity agenda has primarily focused on um, on race, religion, gender, uh, ethnicity, um, and not on disability. And uh, as a matter of fact, the uh, the employer, the supervisor's perspective. Survey that we recently did, it was of 6,000 plus supervisors across the country, uh, asking them about in their uh, employers' uh, practices. Uh, we found that there's a very small proportion of those companies that they work for that included disability in their diversity agenda.
1: Hmm. So it wasn't okay. on the table even when wasn't they were talking the
2: about table. diversity. Yeah, about 12% of those corporations uh, included disability in their diversity agenda. So I think that gives you some insight into um, why people, why that gap still exists. Um, just sort of a lack of awareness? Is, do you think that? Or Yeah, I think it is lack m- of awareness and, and um yeah. And, uh, you know, that, even that's beginning to change, I think, somewhat. Um, and, um, you know, I, I don't have any numbers to support that, but I, I, I have a sense that it's beginning to change. There, there, um, there's a lot of, uh, there has been a, an, an effort to connect. Um, programs in the community that focus on um, employment and disability to corporations and uh, much of the work, or some of the work that the foundation has funded has, has focused on, on uh, workforce intermediary work where there is a a person or a group that brings the employment programs for people with disabilities and employers together, uh-huh. and uh, so that workforce intermediary um, activity has increased, and and uh, more people are getting involved in that, uh, being the intermediaries. <laughs> so, and the
1: intermediary can help um, help the company adjust and help the people adjust. Right, and the company that's they don't have to figure out how to do it on their own.
2: They do not have to figure out how to do it on their own because. Employers typically have said, well, where are these people with disabilities? We will hire them. And, uh, and, and the people with disabilities are saying, we're here. <laughs> but they don't seem to know to- they're never how in the same to, room. <laughs> never in the same room. So uh, this particular m- model is being used extensively within the, uh, within the community across the country. I think it holds promise.
1: Well, you, I, wanna, I don't want to handcuff you here. So let's talk about the, the surveys, the, it's what we call the National Employment Surveys. You, you mentioned the, the one that was for uh, supervisors. That was the 2017 one. Mm-hmm. But you did one in 2015. So let's mm-hmm. And then you're doing one for 2020. Mm-hmm. So let's take a minute and, and just talk about each of those. So the one in 2015 is the first national survey to look at the workplace experience for people living with disabilities. Is that, is that a good capsulization? or? Or
2: give me your own well it's it's not the first survey to do that no um but the one well first of all it was nationally representative survey and um but it's it's um innovation was that it not it didn't only delineate the barriers that people with disabilities face and the uh, in terms of finding work, getting hired, and onboarding. It also looked at um, how those barriers uh, were overcome by people with disabilities. What did they do? You know, How many of them felt they overcome, overcame those barriers, and if they did, what did they do? So that was an innovation, um, and it was really focused on, on striving to work so, um, you know, the, the employment rate amongst people with disabilities is, what, 30, little under 32%, right? Uh, well, in this survey, we found that over 64% of, of, of individuals with disabilities were striving to work in one way or another. They were either looking for work or they'd actually held a job after the onset of their disability, um, and people were working you know most everyone was working more than 35 hours a week Mm. and if they weren't they wanted to and if they were working 35 hours a week a good proportion wanted to work more hours Mm. so uh, it was trying to change the dialogue as to oh, look at how bad it is look at how all what all the barriers are that people with disabilities face um, and tried to change the dialogue and make it more of a striving to work as opposed to, oh, boy, all those poor people are unemployed. Right, right,
1: right. Oh, I'm, I'm going to make an edit point here. Um, You're banging. Is, oh, I'm, I'm hearing it. So <laughs> That's you didn't bang the whole first 30 minutes and you, suddenly you were making points. It was good. Um, you need a bigger. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So this survey was really about talking to people living with disabilities not their employers or or it was going right to them. Is 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 it hard to find that group for you? That Uh like how did you go about identifying them?
2: Well, it was a it was a random digit dial ah. survey and that particular methodology is very expensive and time-consuming, um, and you, you know, the the as it was a household survey, so we were randomly calling households, and we had to we were trying to get about three thousand folks into the survey, and uh, we probably had to call, randomly call. 50,000 homes or, or more to get that many folks. Hmm. And so, yeah, it's effortful because um, uh, the incidence of disability and, uh, is, uh, you know, is, is depends upon the survey, <laughs> but uh, it, it can, uh, it, it, it's not a, a high incidence population. Um, except that some surveys show that it's you know it's a, it's the largest minority group, but it still is a minority group. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. And then the 2017 survey we we touched on was for supervisors. So tell Correct. us, tell me more about that. What was the point of that?
2: Well, the point of that survey was to surveys that have been done of employers in the past have used Dun & Bradstreet list listings in order to identify corporations mm-hmm. that they would call and, um, and um, that the surveyors would call and they would be put in touch with either a CEO or some uh, human resource person or a vice president or... You know, someone who was in the C-suite, who was in leadership. Mm -hmm. And um, we always felt that, well, first of all, the people who were being talked to knew that the surveyors (laughs) knew the company they were working for. Mm -hmm. So there's kind of an... an, um, a social desirability built into their responses in the sense that they're not going to want to make their company look bad. Right. It doesn't mean they were exaggerate or lie, necessarily, but there would be that social desirability factor. Right, yeah. They had also, the, the surveys were uh, done by some of my colleagues, uh, but they were kind of rudimentary and... Um, um um they they would ask about barriers, but they would have a a, a, a list of barriers that, that that they that through experience and anecdotal information they had developed this list of hmm. barriers and um, and they never asked about how these barriers might be overcome um and there was very little qualitative information. Um, The past surveys had also asked about practices in terms of hiring, uh, recruiting, hiring, and onboarding people with disabilities, but they never got at the effectiveness of those, perceived Hmm. effectiveness of those um, practices. So we wanted to conduct a survey that would avoid the social desirability and um, ask about um, uh, the effectiveness of the practices they used, um, as well as collect qualitative information on on how these uh, uh, how the barriers might might have been overcome. Hmm. and so we developed this, so we decided to talk to uh supervisors. Well, another factor was when you're asking someone in the C suite or in leadership, they don't know what's happening on a day to day right basis. Right. I mean they're not well, in the loop. Yeah, yeah. 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 They're, they're 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 not, not walking well, the floor. They're not there, right? right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and um, even the information they're getting is filtered, right? right? So uh so we wanted to go to someone who's closer to the to the lived experience and um um so uh, so we wanted to interview supervisors we did it through a um a company that keeps a large national sample of of all kinds of people including they have a business to business sample hmm. And uh, so we used that sample to reach out to supervisors. But the supervisors knew that we didn't know who they were working for. Right. So uh, that took out the social desirability piece. And um, then we asked them about all the practices and whether they felt they were effective or not generally. And were they as effective with people with disabilities? So we asked them about that as well. So it was a, it was a, it was leaps and bounds um, beyond what uh, the other surveys had been in the past.
1: And then what's what are some of the takeaways then from the survey? What did the supervisors tell you?
2: Uh, was it was much more um, positive than what I thought it was going to be. Um, uh, many supervisors. Um, uh, felt that the, the, the um, for example, the accommodations that they were using generally were also effective for people with disabilities, such mm. as working from home. Mm. Okay? Uh, not all the time, but sometime. Okay? That's a common accommodation that's provided by many corporations to any employee. And uh, the supervisors felt it was working, generally, and working for people with disabilities. Hmm. So there were, there were those, those uh, general kinds of accommodations uh, that were also being used with people with disabilities. I thought that was a positive finding. Um, we found that some of the practices that weren't used very often But when they were used, the supervisors felt they were extremely effective for people with disabilities. For example, um, collaborating with organizations in the community that um, have employment programs for Mm -hmm. people with disabilities. About 19% of the supervisors um, said that their companies were doing that. And... um, Almost 100% felt it was effective if they were doing it. Right. So, so we were we were confirming some of the suspicions we had about these practices that are currently being used. Um, there's also something called a, um, a centralized accommodation fund. Um, many supervisors are hesitant to provide accommodations because it's going to come out of their budget. Mm. Right
1: and accommodations. We're talking ramps or ramps,
2: like, uh, bathroom modifications, mm-hmm. equipment, um, whatever. Okay, and um, um, and the companies that had centralized accommodation funds, so the supervisors wouldn't be coming out of their budgets. Mm. Uh, very few companies were doing that. Maybe ten percent. Mm but almost 100% of those who had it felt it was very effective so we were beginning to confirm some of the some of we were thinking these practices were good but now we have some evidence that they make a difference
1: and and has through these two surveys you've done so far the 2015 2017 survey what have what do you what do you do with that information then how do you get some of that out to the people or implement some of it tell me about that
2: well we um we write papers Mm -hmm. (laughs) we get them out into the uh into the um into the into the journals that are targeted toward people working in the employment and disability space um through our webinars um, that we the lunch and learn webinars that are attached to the entide that comes out every first Friday of the month. Mm-hmm. We we uh, report that the results there. Uh, we go to conferences. Um, I've maybe presented on the. In the last year, I presented on the supervisor's perspective survey maybe at seven conferences. So that's how we get the word
1: so out. So two years later, you're still using that data. Oh, yeah. You're still, yeah. You're still making the pitches.
2: Yeah. And, and there's also additional research we can do based upon the data we currently have. Um there's, uh, We asked the supervisors if we could come back to them with additional questions, um, and about 1,700 of the 6,000 said we could do that. So we can apply for additional research dollars in order to begin to mine that opportunity.
1: Yeah, I, some of it I just see as a marketing problem, like to get awareness. Like you need a Coca-Cola kind of budget to really... Right. Make make an impact. Uh, I you know not that I'm not taking away anything, mind you. I know what you're doing. And I know how hard
2: you're working. But well, there's there's also there are others that are working on this issue. These, um, uh American Association for People with Disabilities, which is a, a, a fairly large advocacy or organization in Washington. They have their their. It's not really a. I guess it's a survey, but they have. Um, they have a bunch of best practices that they ask companies to benchmark themselves on Mm. and um and many of those practices are are in our survey and and um, it's just that we have some we have some real data on their effectiveness so there's there's a crossover there Um, and so it's not just us it's there are others that are doing that as well and and with the
1: uh, being based in Washington is also going to be talking to the right people. Right. Yeah, that's right. great. Well, right. That's good.
2: And there's the National Organization on Disability, NOD, and they have their own benchmarking, and uh, so we actually, and their board is made up of CEOs and, and people disabilities, but primarily CEOs and. Uh, um, we've presented to their board about these results, and they were very interested. So it's not just us. <laughs> That's good. That's good to know. So tell
1: me about the 2020 survey then. So what, what's the focus of that then?
2: that survey will fo- focus on the employment of people with disabilities who have received post-secondary degrees of one sort or another okay either an associate's degree or a bachelor's degree or even a graduate degree and employment um, there's been some um, there's been some research that's been done uh, by You know, individual universities showing that people with disabilities who get uh, uh, post-secondary degrees are not getting employed as readily as people without Hmm. disabilities. And um, in some ways, if if you know, if uh, folks with disabilities who are getting graduate degrees, you know, from like Berkeley, right. (laughs) uh, can't get employment after graduation something's wrong with that picture so um, on the other hand some of the um, some of the national surveys uh, done um, some of the census surveys have shown that um, the benefit that people with disabilities get out of uh, having a graduate degree even those even though there's, just dis- dis- in earnings, for example, even though there's a discrepancy between people with disabilities and people without, the bump-up that people with disabilities get from increasing uh, degrees mm-hmm. um, is greater than the bump-up that people without disabilities get. Hmm. So the benefit is greater. And so let's let's find a way to in lessen that gap uh, between people with and without disabilities who have post-secondary degrees. Let's lessen that gap because, um, because it, it, it is definitely a benefit. It, it raises all boats. It's a tide that raises everyone's uh, boat, uh, people with and without disabilities, but those discrepancies still exist, and let's see if we can close that gap. Um, even more.
1: And so, for this survey, what what's your methodology to to find the people?
2: Well, we're going to use uh, the uh, survey service, the Qualtrics that maintains this large, very large national sample of people with uh, of people, period. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're going to use them to to find individuals with disabilities that are. You know, a couple years out from getting their degree, and uh, and ask them about what their situation is uh, currently in terms of employment, but also uh, what happened to them while they were getting towards the end of their degree. What kinds of services did they get? What kinds of supports? um, And we're going to try and figure out why why this gap exists. And um, we are also going to have uh, another sample, a matched sample of individuals without disabilities in the same situation. Hmm. So we can begin to understand more about why the disparities exist.
1: And and this survey would be of interest to universities to, to improve their systems or is it yeah. a, a bigger audience than that? I'm sure?
2: I think it's bigger than that. I think uh, it's really for the workforce development uh, community which includes universities. Uh, universities and uh, post-secondary institutions Are their feet are being held to the fire uh, by many uh, different groups in terms of the workforce outcomes mm-hmm. um, that they are you know, that they're con- contributing to or not and we're and talk, when
1: you say many different groups are holding your feet to the fire you're not just talking about disability groups you're talking no, no, about I'm other... talking
2: about yeah I'm talking about the US Department of Education and mm-hmm. <laughs> and Congress and okay <laughs> so you know we're spending all this money on loans for kids youth young adults uh, with and without disabilities and you know what's the impact right and um, you know there's there's a, there's a real problem with people not finishing their degrees and then not getting better jobs generally. Um, and uh, we know it's true for, probably it's also true for, well, we know it's true for people with disabilities as well.
1: And the results of the 2020 survey will be in uh, right around the time of, we as we're celebrating the 50th anniversary of the ADA, is that? Yes, correct. So sometime yeah. in the summer.
2: Yeah, and also, you know, these folks that are, um, you know, that are, um, you know, uh, just a few years out of post-secondary education at the time we do the survey, they're the children of the Americans with Disabilities Act Mm. because they were born after, just after. right, And uh, so, you know, if those disparities still exist... um, which they probably will. Uh, it it'll there'll be more impetus for for movement forward because if if anything should have improved, there a lot the Americans with Disabilities Act should have.
1: Right, so it's sort of a lit, lit, litmus test. Yes. Yeah, and then what's the. Um what would it be, 2022, 2023 survey? Do you have any? You've got a pattern here. I'm just curious if you thought ahead.
2: I should live so long.
1: <laughs> Fair enough. Let me, there's, there's another piece. I'm going to move ahead from the surveys, if that's all right. There's another piece of, of work that you do here um, that we call the Kessler Vocational Research Facilitation Program. So tell me about that. That's a that's that's uh tell me about that. I'll okay. just let you tell me.
2: Well, when I first came to the foundation and obviously the foundation has a very solid uh historical and current relationship with uh the Kessler um uh the Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation, which is a uh, acute uh rehabilitation hospital uh, for folks who have just sustained some sort of disability and they're out of acute care and they're sent for uh, medical rehabilitation. Uh, and when I first came, I, I, I recognized that there was very little being done within the hospital. It's The Kessler Institute is one of the largest freestanding medical rehab uh Facilities in the country, and, um, and over time, these stays at these acute medical rehab facilities have gotten shorter and shorter. Uh, one time, it wasn't unusual for people, for example, with spinal cord injury, staying in these acute medical rehab facilities for six months, a year, even longer. And when that was the case, There was more connection to vocational rehabilitation. Um, There were actually vocational rehabilitation counselors in the hospital working with individuals, uh, talking about employment once they're discharged and back to community life. Um, But as the stays got shorter and shorter, it's not unusual for someone with a spinal cord injury to be in acute medical rehab for Four, mo- four weeks. Four weeks. <laughs> four weeks as opposed to six months or a year. And that,
1: that shortness has not, is not necessarily because, hey, we've gotten really good at this. It's, it, does it have to do with insurance money? Is that the bottom
2: line? It has line? to do with insurance, yeah. And the, and the emphasis now is really on um, – the emphasis now during that peri- period is, is getting people up and moving mm. and, and physically functional again. And there's been no room for focusing on employment Mm -hmm. because the hospitals are reimbursed for what they do medically, not for what they do socially. Right, right. (laughs) Um, So I I felt that there was a possibility for some early intervention on the inpatient unit, uh, vocational rehabilitation intervention, uh, but only if there was follow-up post-discharge. Um, and there's a whole movement these days around early intervention and many kinds of issues uh, related to healthcare, care and uh, also in terms of employment. Um, and uh, so we... We applied for a grant from the Nielsen Foundation, uh, Craig Nielsen Foundation, to try out uh, vocational resource facilitation, which is a model that had been used in traumatic brain injury. Um, It originally was uh, used um, at the Mayo Clinic where where a uh, resource facilitator, employment resource facilitator, would work while people were inpatients. And then follow them after discharge. I don't think Mayo at the time was thinking about it as early intervention, but it was, right. and um, and it was shown to be pretty darn effective hmm. for people returning to work or or going back uh, going to work. And it had never been applied for SCI, which is a very different ball of wax in terms of the issues and and uh, spinal cord injury, spinal cord injury. Okay. Injury, correct, okay. and so we applied for this grant, and uh, now we have funding from the state vocational rehabilitation program to continue this service, and um, and it's being it's being done at KIR, and we hope to uh, we hope to move it out to other acute medical rehab facilities. We've gotten some interest uh, from the um, some other um, acute medical rehab facilities around the country uh, who would be interested in uh, engaging in such an effort. And we found that the return to work rate is much better um, for people with spinal cord injury who are part of this model than the benchmark that the uh, spinal cord injury model systems data shows. For example, the return to work rate one year after uh, being discharged in the model systems. Overall, the model systems... And all Just
1: interrupted. interrupt the model systems is a nationwide a sort niche. of collection of data from all over the country, and there's a lot of statistics available to you, and that's what you're referring to. Right. That's okay.
2: what we're referring to. Okay. And that... Um, so their benchmark is you know, at one year post-discharge, about 12% of individuals with SCI return to work. And we're finding at KIR that's about 31%. Hmm. Um, wow. So it's it's an improvement, wow. considerable. Yeah. I mean, if you just looked at 31% and didn't have a comparison, you'd go, eh, so what? <laughs> right. <laughs> But are compared to what, as my father used to say. <laughs> <laughs> That's great.
1: So th- that program is on a grant. Is it? Is it how, long, how many years has it got to go yet? And, and well, the
2: grant is finished at the end of this year, but we already have state funding from vocational rehabilitation to continue it. So it's, it's part of the service system now in, in, New, York, uh, in New Jersey. Sorry.
1: And that's how other people will fund it?
2: Uh, we're hoping, yes. Yeah. So we're going to work with the uh, trade group for the uh, vocational rehabilitation programs throughout the nation. We'll work with that group in order to um, interest the states. Uh That we're going to move into to fund such a program as long as it's effective, uh, and we have the benchmarks to to use for effectiveness. So, what do you think
1: this rehabilitation area will look like in say ten years? Again, uh, w- w- excluding the fact that you may or may not be with us at that time <laughs> in one way or another who knows who's going to be here but what what do, what do you see where where do you what are the trends what do you see where do you see it going
2: well it's not where i see where i hope <laughs> okay i'll accept that where do you hope it goes that's a good that's a good distinction yeah well there there are opportunities um uh, one opportunity is there's a, there's a trade group for all of these medical rehab facilities, acute medical rehab facilities around the country, and there, there are literally hundreds of them uh, into the thousands uh, of these acute medical rehab facilities around the country that are working with people with spinal cord injury. And, um, Which
1: is a growth, right? That, that wasn't always the case of these uh, acute facilities.
2: Well, I don't know. I don't know how long the trade group's been in existence. Um, but, yes, it's, it's certainly growth. I mean, when you see for-profit companies coming into this <laughs> space and wanting to buy these acute medical rehab facilities, uh, you know it's a growth. Yeah, okay. Uh, it's a growth industry. So, uh, so there's, there's an opportunity there. Um, and uh, to to move the these services, these these collaborations between state vocational rehabilitation and acute medical rehab facilities. So there is that, and it's sort of like we're back to the future in a way, because at one time, when the stays were much longer, there were many, there were many of these facilities that had, Vocational rehabilitation counselors, actually, who were working from who were working for the state program, who were outplaced into these medical mm. rehab facilities, either full time or part time. Uh, but that went away when the medical rehab stays got shorter and shorter.
1: And do you think technology is going to play a, a key role in this? Or
2: technology definitely will play a role uh, because spinal cord. Injury or returning to work, and technology is key. It's a, core, it's a core element of returning to work in one fashion or another.
1: And I'll give you my final question, which is, and we've already discussed your longevity, but <laughs> what, do you, what do you like about working at, at Kessler? What keeps you here?
2: Um, all the opportunities uh, to engage in research, Um, and, um, they're just, I'll compare it to an academic setting, um, the, uh, I thought I always wanted to work in an academic setting and uh, be with my colleagues and, uh, and be teaching and doing research and, um. But many academic settings, you know they value research, but they don't promote it to the degree that uh, an organization like Kessler Foundation does. And um, and there are always you're always in an academic setting if you're that's not true necessarily of medical m- medical academic settings, medical schools there you, Live or die by your funded research, <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. uh, but in most academic settings, it's not that way. You need to publish, and um, but you don't. You you're often buried in a large institution, and uh, you don't get much recognition, and and there's no one there pushing out your results to the uh, uh, to the public um and here at kessler that that is all it's very different um and uh you're and and you're given lots of opportunities to be creative and and to follow your your uh, best instincts great well thank Research, you yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. great
0: thank you john
1: appreciate it
2: you're welcome
0: For more information about Kessler Foundation, go to KesslerFoundation.org. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts.